Every region of the country has its customary date when you ought to plant your summer garden. Here in central Alabama, it's Good Friday. Well, we're way past Good Friday, so you may be wondering, is it too late for me to plant a garden? And our answer is an unequivocal no. Welcome to Longleaf Breeze, subsistence farmers using three simple principles, approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it, and we don't make all misstatements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast of May 15th, 2014. Um, we were asked to address the question you mentioned uh, to a group of people at the Wetumpka Library just the other night. Um, Very pleasant group. It was just a lot of fun. We had a good time. Yeah, really, really good group. And and um, the topic was, it's not too too late to plant that garden. Um, as you said, in central Alabama, we have our um, our mythology that turned out to be, with reason, Good Friday being a good time to um, plant a garden, um, with some exceptions, of course. And Good Friday, the date for Good Friday jumps around on the calendar. This year, Good Friday was actually pretty late, April 20th or something like that. Easter yeah. was April 20th. And so we the cleared 18th. it. But and the fact is, there's still a good bit of time, and there are relatively few choices you might mm -hmm. make for a summer garden that you can't go ahead and make now. That's right. Uh, as with uh, all of our gardening tips that we give we do as an act of fair disclosure want to tell you that we only know how to do it organically we are organic gardeners and so uh, the tips and tricks or whatever you want to call them that we'll be uh, offering will be from that perspective and I should point out that we are using some PowerPoint slides that are available online uh, this Just go to longleafbreeze.com and look for podcast number 237. It's not too late to plant that garden, and there will be a link to the slides. We're going to be talking about the essentials for growing food, the best vegetables to plant now, that is in central Alabama, uh, organic weed control, organic pest control, and we're going to finish by talking a little bit about the advantages and the disadvantages of using raised beds. Anyone who's listened to our podcast in the past knows that we've often addressed the essentials of planting a vegetable garden. Uh, but we want to, for those of you who've heard us before, we're going to reiterate what those are. You want to start small. Be realistic about what you can actually say grace over. Do as we do. not <clears throat> um, no, Do as we say, not what yeah, we did. Yeah, because we started out too large, and we know how to pay the price for getting your eyes bigger than your ability to, uh, to sustain. If you have a lot of shade, you can get away with with a garden and have a, a perfectly serviceable garden, but it will be difficult to grow food without having at least six hours yeah. of sunshine. Yes, there are some shade-tolerant uh, plants that you can enjoy uh, from an uh, aesthetic perspective, but it will not be a way to grow vegetables. Um, decent soil, and we recommend running a soil test. If you're in this area where we are, you can uh, go through Auburn University, and for about $7, they can, uh, with, if you send them a soil sample, they can run a test and determine your pH. That's is, anywhere in Alabama, yeah. and if you're in another state, chances are your state offers the service. Absolutely. I know that Mississippi and Georgia, is. our neighboring states, offer them. So uh, through their 
their university, some of the universities there. So take advantage of that and find out what uh, minerals you might need to add for your um, to to grow healthy plants as well as the pH. <clears throat> and then you'll of course need seed or plants or some uh, media or some way of growing. I mean, like some people grow potatoes from slips or cuttings. Uh, whatever you're going to use to start your plant. And, of course, a source of water. All plants need water, so uh, be prepared to um, water. And it, it's not going to, unless you live in a climate where it rains all the time. If you're in central Alabama, it doesn't, so you will need to supplement. And there are, we get plenty of rain here. We got around 50 inches of rain, but there are extended periods during which it stays dry day after day after day. And right. that's when you need to be prepared. The problem to. is it's not consistent. That's exactly right. It's not a consistent source of, of water. And time and patience. You got to have, uh, even if you're a busy person and you're, you have a job full time, it doesn't mean you can't have a vegetable garden. But know that when you're not at work, you're, it'll be a jealous mistress out there in your garden. It's always easier to grow close to where you live, and you've used the example several times, and I agree with you, the advantage of being able to get up in the morning, look out the room where you slept, and see what's going on in your garden. Which I can do, and it's very helpful. Um, and of course, if you want to, for the purposes of harvesting, if you're growing herbs and you want to run out and put some in your salad that night, <clears throat> it's very convenient. But the most important thing is to be able to scout for insects, and just keep up with what's going on out there. So let's talk a little bit more closely about that water. One of the things that it's easy to get in the habit of doing when you're a new gardener is using one of those overhead sprinklers, the broadcast sprinklers that just sprays water everywhere. It, it's better than nothing, but there are some difficulties that it causes, notably that it leaves leaves wet. And uh, the problem, of course, there is that it can be a way of... Um, harboring disease fungi uh, make it a home for pests it just it's not a good idea and especially you don't want to wet the leaves you don't want to water it in the late afternoon or evening because then the sun it doesn't even have the advantage of the sun being able to dry those leaves off but you also don't want to wet the leaves in the middle of the day and have the sun um, you know this the plants vulnerable to um, being told oh I could open my stoma now. There's water. And then the sun just bakes that plant that much more. So do try to not wet leaves of plants if you can. Probably the gold standard for getting water to the plants when they need it is drip irrigation. It's very efficient. It delivers water exactly where the plant needs it. And you end up with almost no runoff if you do it well. And it goes right into the roots of the plant, and it does not get on the leaves, which is real important. Soaker hose, if you, if you don't want to go to the trouble to put drip in, and really drip, if you're going to be doing this uh, over an extended period, it's worth uh, not only the price, but the whatever work you have to do to, put the, to install the system, because it'll be permanent. Uh, soaker hoses tend to deteriorate over time. However, they too have the advantage of putting the moisture right into the soil and not going onto the leaves. Another option is to hand water if you do it very carefully by getting in under the foliage and watering the soil rather than the top of the plant. And you've already mentioned not to use broadcast sprinklers but um, because they will wet the leaves and uh, there can be runoff and that kind of thing. It's just probably the least... Um, 
palatable option of all the watering. So here we are at the middle of May. Let's talk a little bit about what vegetables make sense to plant here in central Alabama. And let's just go down the list. You can plant lima beans, you can plant pole beans, corn, cucumbers, eggplant, okra, and uh, we do think okra is pretty, so you put an extra picture of a little blossom there. For no good reason. I just think it's pretty. You can plant southern peas, and by that I mean black-eyed peas or purple hull peas. It's just excluding, that is, it's too late for spring peas, that those that like cooler weather. But the southern peas, field peas, some people call them, that family is just great. Uh, peppers, sweet potatoes, squash melons, pumpkins, and, and I will mention, and we have this on our um, slide, that some of those, uh, notably the peppers and the um, eggplant and the sweet potatoes, uh, we'd recommend just going into a store, a, a, a nursery or something, and buying them as transplants. Or start your own. It's just that now that's going to set you back even further on the calendar because it'll take about six weeks for those um, seeds to to turn into transplants, but you don't just stick the seed of the eggplant or the pepper um, right into the soil. That's an interesting list, but what's interesting to me, most interesting to me, is tomatoes are not on it. You know, actually, we were sort of orienting this presentation to people who were beginning gardeners, but you know, we're just joking here. I fully intended to talk about planting tomatoes. It, it is definitely not too late to plant tomatoes, but it's kind of our shtick to hold back on tomatoes and talk about it last because um, as we learned from when we took our Master Gardener class, Danny Carroll, who is our expert on vegetable gardening, uh, said that, you know, the, and she's right, the plant that every, the vegetable everybody wants to plant first are tomatoes. And yet that's the most difficult to grow. So we always set that one aside and say, okay, this is why they're challenging. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You should, because you're going to love tomatoes. But why? First of all, we there are certain pests that actually um, prey on tomatoes that are uh, pretty devastating, and one of them is a tomato hornworm. Um, and this picture we have is is a little deceptive because it's so easy to tell where the hornworm stops and the stem begins. When the hornworms are actually on your tomatoes, they blend right in. Yes, it is one of the miracles of camouflage of nature. It's <laughs> very hard to find them. But when you go out and you see that all the leaves are off of your tomatoes and it looks as though somebody pruned them for you, that's probably a hornworm at work. Another problem, blossom end rot. And we have a picture there that shows it. So even if you've had tomatoes with this and you didn't know what it was, it's just that um, it's, it's caused by a lack of calcium in the plant. But Typically, what causes most people who have blossom in rot to get it, it's uh, inconsistent watering of that plant. Yeah, letting the, them dry out and then giving them too much water mm -hmm. at one time. Yeah, because that uh, the, the that's the the water is the medium for getting the calcium up into the plant. Um, however, it's also possible you have a calcium deficiency in your soil, and if so, you'd need to amend that. Um, different different kinds of blight. There's an early blight, a late blight, a southern blight. There are all kinds of um, diseases that can hit plants. Uh, rarely are they fatal to the plant, but they also, uh, in some cases, they are, are so devastating that you will want to pull the plant. It can be contagious to other plants, so um, it's frustrating for that reason. You may lose a whole row of tomatoes that way. Um, sometimes we've had trouble with tomato growing because 
of long, hot, dry summers. The tomatoes can shut down and not even ripen if it gets too hot. They can split in the heat. That's been a problem. On the other hand, last summer was the opposite problem. It was too wet. And the tomatoes didn't dry out. They didn't have proper ventilation. And they basically developed, a, they were susceptible to a, a blight that hit yeah, them. Yeah, the, the long, hot, dry summers have clipped our wings. The wet, cool summer just drove us into the Shut ground. Shut us down. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And then people can who are gardening can become distracted. That is, maybe get busy with another project. You neglect your garden for a few days. Then you go out and... Bad things these have happened. Bad things have happened. <laughs> But you're going to grow tomatoes anyway, right? So what, what are some things we could advise? Well, if the problem is the, the hot, dry summer, especially with the, the, the baking sun coming down, you can actually uh, provide a little afternoon shade for the ripening fruit um, by provide, putting up shade cloth or something like that. Or, have, or position them where they get a little afternoon yeah, shade. Yeah, a little afternoon. If you're getting six to eight hours nearby. of sun... And you can, you've got a good place to plant them that they're getting that. And then by the time the really hot afternoon sun comes in, you're shading them. That's good. Um, when you get your transplants to, to ready them to plant, uh, try to make sure they're at least six inches tall and, and six inches wide because that's a, an ideal size. You want to plant them deep. And we have a picture of, uh, that I can show you. But you want to, if you look at the picture of these tomatoes in uh, a cell pack, you want to clip off the lower leaves and maybe just those that first main cluster of leaves at the top. Leave that and then plant that whole stem and root ball underground. And the shortcut way to do that instead of having to dig a really deep hole is you can actually put a trench and lay the stem down in the trench. I do that. To, it's a, a lot easier to plant that way. But the reason you do that is all these little kind of hairy um Prick, they're not prickly, but sort of hairs along the stem will become roots when they're in the soil and there's moisture added. And that's what you want is a nice, strong root system. Um, one thing I've learned fairly recently is that uh, spacing, I used to think, ah, oh, two to three feet, whatever, two, you know, maybe even less than two feet. No, at least three, especially for those indeterminate, large, gangly tomatoes that will grow huge. Um Airflow is critical. If those tomatoes get damp or wet and stay that way, you might as well kiss it goodbye. So just to be safe, plant them three feet apart and make sure they've got lots of airflow. It's also important to add mulch after you plant them so that when it rains, and especially with some of the really heavy rains we get here, um, that soil, you don't want the soil to um, you know, splash, with, up, splash up, yeah, because that can spread disease. You want to have a, some kind of cage or trellis. We tend to use trellises, but a lot of people prefer cages, and that's fine. And as we've already talked about, watering consistently is important. And, of course, you don't want to over-fertilize them, especially with nitrogen, because then you'll just get a nice big green plant and uh, no fruit or little fruit. So don't over-fertilize. And you don't want the fruit to, to get on the ground. That's one reason for the trellising. Um, it could rot easily if it lies on the ground. Oh, interplanting with marigold and basil. We've learned that dealing with hornworms. Yes, that it has worked for me. And we have a slide here showing this summer's garden that has, um, you see some early girl tomato plants there. 
and everything's small right now, but it will grow and the basil will grow. But the basil and the marigolds really do seem to help deter those pesky hornworms. Trellising works not just for tomatoes, but several other crops as well. And we've had real good luck with trellising. Um, and we've got a, a slide here of our sweet potatoes that were just, they just took over the trellis last year. And you can see from the hall on the floor of the shop that uh, we did real well with sweet potatoes last year. And we credit the trellis for, for part of that success. Right. And plus, we're planting in raised beds now. And so it's important to be able to trellis. But let's mention which, uh, just in case someone's not familiar, if you're starting out, if you plant peas, <clears throat> pole beans, lima beans, we've mentioned tomatoes, uh, even cucumbers along with the sweet potatoes, uh, trellising is a good idea. And in fact, for the beans and the peas, it's essential. It's They've almost got a, to be yeah, able to you, climb. Otherwise, you just lose control of them. Mm -hmm. And ideally, you want to trellis, you want to erect the trellis before you plant the crop just because it's a little harder to come back in and add the, the trellis after the crop's already come up. If it's grown a lot, yeah. I mean, you could you could do plant your seeds and put the trellis in on the same day. But once you have those little delicate plants there, you're not going to want to mess with them. If you don't want to start your plants from seed, you can actually just go to the store and buy some transplants. Buy from a, a reputable nursery or... In our case, we have a superfoods right here in town that has an excellent track record for supplying healthy plants. Uh, but as we've talked about in a previous podcast, a nice source of plants is a, a local garden clubs, master gardener groups. Perhaps, uh, I know at Auburn University, we have um, a horticulture club of students there that uh, will put on a plant sale every year. And I've bought a lot of healthy transplants from them. So just look around the area and see where you want to, to purchase your transplants. Uh, so many of these, um, I know the, the big box stores or a supermarket uh, will have their plants arrayed on a fairly tall rack with rows of plants, you know, descending. And if possible, we recommend buying your plants from the top rack uh, because if you ever watch the, the people, the owners of the store watering, the water, they start and it waters from the top and the water trickles down through all the plants. And that actually can spread disease amongst the lower plants if there is disease there, which of course you hope not, but if you can, get top rack plants. And um, we have a picture of a banana pepper plant that I purchased um, just as a transplant. And I've never even started my own banana plants from seed, uh, banana peppers from seed, because I've always been lucky to find really good transplants in the store. So let's talk a little bit about organic weed control. One of the things that you do to keep the weeds confused is crop rotation. That's right. And, you know, you, you rotate crops not just to deal with weed issues, also for um, soil, you know, nutrient depletion in the soil and pest um, problems. But weed control is a good reason to do it uh, because you can just, the more you change things up the less you keep the conditions right for a certain weed but even more important to me what's worked better is cover crops or in addition to and you can see a picture here of sun hemp that has gotten really tall uh, that's a summer cover crop here's a picture we also have a picture of uh, you out there in the garden with some black oats in a raised bed black oats make an excellent winter cover crop and in both cases if you plant them densely enough 
those cover crops can actually help choke out weeds. Um, in particular, I remember when I terminated those black oats and got ready to plant my summer crop that year, there were practically no weeds in there. There was no room for them. Yeah, and what, what these cover crops do so well is to keep the organic matter in your soil. And here in central Alabama, we always have to struggle to keep the organic matter up because right. it tends to burn off very easily. Yeah, so, so the cover crops uh, provide many fu positive, positive functions for us. Um, you can also control weeds with physical barriers, mulch. And, and we have a photo here of a row of strawberries that have been mulched, kind of double mulch, really. They have uh, some weed guard under there that's a that will break down it's a i actually did i wanted to be able to have daughter plants later so um i had a biodegradable weed guard and then covered that up with hay uh you just want to avoid bare soil if you can because of problems as i've mentioned earlier uh water splashing the soil up onto the leaf of the plant also um you want to, to keep the moisture in the roots of the, near the roots of the plant and the bare soil, the water evaporates that much more. So you don't want it to. But if you've you lost control and you have a bed that's just full of weeds, hey, don't give up hope. There's always cellarization. That's right. In fact, um, we've, we, during our presentation, we like to refer to a number of different uh, publications that the Alabama Cooperative Extension System offers. And one of those, and they actually have a publication on soil solarization for the control of uh, many things, diseases and insects and weeds. But um, it's ANR 1213. So if you are interested, there's more. And, and all of these are available on the aces.edu website. Right. And I'll link to them on the show notes page. And of course, if all else fails, there's always getting down on your hands and knees and pulling those weeds out of the ground. My least fun way of doing it, and you included a very sad-looking picture of me doing just that. <laughs> but it's surprisingly <laughs> frequently used, isn't it? Yes, it is, yes. <laughs> okay, let's switch gears to organic pest control. Well, as we've talked about on so many occasions, that the secret to healthy plants is to start with healthy soil. And that also applies to being making it more resistant to pests. I mean, helping this, the plant have enough strength and vigor about it that it can withstand the onslaught of pests by and large. And you want to be somewhat thoughtful about the varieties you select to plant. Uh, here's a, a great example of that. We have a real problem here in our garden with squash bugs. Mm -hmm. So we have to be somewhat careful about what varieties of squash we plant. Right, but actually the only uh, there are some squash varieties that have been developed to be more resistant to the squash vine borer. We actually have a picture of that too, borer damage, which is where the whole plant just overnight dies to the ground. Uh, the squash bug, unfortunately, I don't think there have been any varieties developed that are resistant to squash bug. And for us, and this may not be the best way to go about it, we just recoiled from planting squash for an entire season. Because we'll of plant that. some this year trying to get back in it. Oh, yes, I'm and, and I'll talk about in a minute what my strategy is for that. Uh, so, yes, and, and tomatoes, the, uh, one of the best-known vegetables for uh, the fact that different hybrids have been developed to be uh, resistant to certain diseases um, would be tomatoes there. And so do your research before you plant a tomato plant. 
about that. Now, companion planting is another strategy that we've used because you can pl- interplant herbs um, or simply interplant other types of plants. But I mean, I use herbs a lot because there are some herbs that actually repel pests. And at the very least, it helps to confuse the pests so that they don't just get started and go down a whole row of monoculture and take out all of it that it'll, you know, they'll come to some different plant that is not their host and and maybe move on or at least be slowed down a little bit. The picture that you are, uh, that goes with this slide shows onion chives, which are so pretty, if I do say so myself, interplanted with lettuce. And um, it's not really, I mean, it's kind of planted in, it kind of just happened actually, but I'm letting it stay because I thought that's my that's my companion planting. Yeah. Um, and we've already mentioned the, the practice of basil and marigold in with tomatoes. Uh, physical barriers, that's another way to deal with pest problems. One year we were just covered up with California. I'm sorry. With, don't, don't want to blame California for that one. <laughs> Carolina grasshoppers. Um, when we planted our collards and other fall veg, I'd put this fairly small, trans, normal-sized transplant of a collard plant in the ground and the next morning get up and it was just gone the grasshoppers had eaten it so we in desperation set up these uh hoops and draped insect barrier it's called agribon ag15 we draped it over these hoops and it really did help us get through that season Yeah, the sun can penetrate and come in the moisture can penetrate but the grasshoppers cannot so you can see the outside view, and then the next slide shows from inside the uh, tunnel there, and you see. I think these are Brussels sprouts. Those are Brussels, yeah, and they're very happy little plants. Yeah. That. So, and and the nice thing about those fall plants is they don't require pollination. If you use a row cover of that nature on over squash, which is one way actually to deal with squash bugs, is as soon as you plant it, put the row cover over it. Uh, but as soon as that squash blossoms. Um, which means it's going to need to be pollinated, then um, you need to remove the row cover at that point. And just cross your fingers, hope, pray, uh, get your rabbit's foot out, you know, whatever it takes to um, um, per, say an incantation. <laughs> and, and mostly but go But the out, larger plants yeah, do tend to be less vulnerable. They're less vulnerable. And also, if you're organic, just go out there and plan to kill some squash bugs by hand. Um, and you saw the pictures a few in, earlier the, of the adult squash bug. And I think you showed one with they lay their eggs on the underside of a leaf so that in the leaf margins, so that if you see these sort of little coppery colored, lots of little round things right together on the underside of your squash plant leaf, uh, pick those off too because those are squash bug eggs. Now, uh, talking about squash bugs and squash, a new strategy that I am trying this year, well, it's rel- it's only relatively new. It's been v- developed through the, um, largely through the uh, Integrated Pest Management System, IPM. And I know it, at Auburn, there's an active uh, group dealing with that and rec- making recommendations. But I'm using a trap crop. And we have a photograph here of a, a bed of squash that I planted. Blue Hubbard squash was is the mainstay of it because that's supposed to really attract squash bugs. Um, and stink bugs and that kind of thing, but and it's primarily here as a sacrificial lamb. It is, yeah. I mean, if it, but I do want to keep it alive because the whole idea is I want the squash bugs to find that first. And then there's also, if you look at the picture and see a tall thing, there's a sunflower coming up too. That's also supposed supposed to be a good um, draw for stink bugs and 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 the like, so that they can um, 
And I'm and I'm saying stink bugs and squash bugs because those are both major pests for my garden. Um, but they, uh, what you can do if you're organic is you have to um, go in and I guess either hand pick or flame those um, off. But there are uh, part of integrated pest management philosophy is that for certain it's it's okay to use certain pesticides as well. I don't because I'm completely organic. But if you were to do it to choose that route, then you just go in and spray put you know put seven dust or whatever way you want to eliminate those. Um, and I'm not an expert on exactly what type of um, or, uh, pesticide would need to be used, and but you can you know find out through um, ACES publications and the like. Another option which we use a lot is letting God handle it. What you see here is a picture of a ladybug, and the ladybug really saved our peas. Um, we had one year when we basically lost our entire crop of peas to aphids. Yeah, aphids are bad news, but turns out that ladybugs are sometimes called lady beetles. They like aphids, and so we, the, the season after we had such devastation with the aphids, uh, the aphids came back, but, but then the ladybugs moved in. And, and they took it. care of them yeah. for us, and we never did anything active to encourage that. It just happened. Yeah. Um, another success story that we have is um, you've put another a picture of a tomato hornworm up. Is that from our garden? No, that's okay. from someone else. Yeah, we need to be taking. Of course, I hope I don't uh, see yeah, anymore. Yeah, we have lots of options. We, <laughs> I don't we can see. we can take pictures of hornworms every but year. The picture that we have that is from our garden, you're going to show next. If you see when you look at our slides and you see a picture of a tomato hornworm with lots of little white things projecting from it, this is a good thing. This is a good development because what has happened is a bracketed wasp. And they're very small, and they're, they're not a stinging thing to be afraid of. They're, they're actually very good critters to have around because they lay their um, eggs, really, and they, this is actually a, the larva form, larval form of the bracketed wasp in tomato hornworms. They, they like to, and it destroys, it kills the tomato hornworm. And as we <clears throat> took this picture, that hornworm was still alive, but frozen. Just hanging on for dear life. And yes, if you see one of those in your garden with the, with the bracketed wasp larva on it. Don't kill it. Do not kill it. Because it's doomed anyway. It's going to die. And it's providing a host for little bracketed wasps to be so Hatched. there will be more bracketed wasps to handle hornworms next year. Yay! <laughs> so we hope that, yeah, we have a whole little group, bunch of groupies out there for the horn, bracketed hornworm. And uh, frankly, we wasp. have the same hope about squash bugs and squash vine borers, that they have predators, and we just need to let the predators find them. And we are continuing to hope that that takes over. And, and one other thing I'll mention, and we didn't have a slide on this one, but... Uh, Last year, we had kudzu bugs that got into the beans and an assassin bug, which is a, a good stink bug, really, but it, but they look totally different. But it, it's actually one that will kill um, kudzu bugs, and I saw one out there. And it didn't take long for them to come, for that assassin bug to come. So we've seen several stories in action of of the predators coming and i'm trying to be even more intentional about planting uh in a way that attracts beneficial insects so we're hoping the letting god handle it strategy is going to work for us and one of the things we do that 
allows us to rely on that is we don't ever spray any poison on any of our plants. And we think that if we did spray poison, we might be accidentally compromising one of our predators. Yeah, a lot. it depends on how the pesticide works, but in many cases they are... Um, on, you know, it's a tactile thing, like, like the minute it touches the insect and it doesn't discriminate. There's some of them that are targeted to particular insects, but uh, unfortunately, there in some cases, there are pests that you could be destroying the good with the bad. Another thing, another way of organic pest control is saving your own seed. Because what happens is, uh, over time, you develop a cultivar that's ideally suited to your growing conditions and your pests. Yeah, and, and we actually, we have a photograph here of uh, some, I'm holding some rattlesnake bean seeds um, that we later planted because that seems to be something that has adapted well here. I know we had a watermelon one time that, uh, it was one of the best watermelons I've ever tasted that we had saved the seed from here. So uh, there are several that I have high hopes that they have, uh, again, developed some of the resistance over the generations of being here. Let's talk a little bit about raised beds. We have spent a good bit of time without them. Now we use them. We like our raised beds. We're glad we have them. Um, so we thought we'd just talk a little bit about advantages and then some disadvantages. Right. You can plant more densely in a raised bed than you just could in the, the ground, um, and that will actually give you more growing space for your, you know, more bang for your buck in terms of the space. Uh, which for a person with a small amount of property or something, that might be good. And also, you can see I have a picture there with uh, lots of kale and other nice green growing things that are planted very intensely. And it does tend to crowd out the weeds. Uh, well, we'll talk more about a disadvantage later, but that's an advantage. You can see we have another picture of uh, you're in it with the garlic growing out of a raised bed. And I planted them pretty close together. Uh, it helps when drainage is poor to have um, a raised bed. And we have several people who live in Montgomery where the soil, in certain sections of Montgomery, um, it's called gumbo. It's a, it's a low-draining soil. Um, any clay-type soil that, um, you know, you're not going to get, if you plant in ground, you're going to have poor drainage, then you might just want to put in a raised bed and import some healthy soil and put it in there and plant. Um, if you're looking to plant early in the year, one advantage is the the raised bed warms up faster in the springtime, so you can plant uh, ahead of time and speed up the germination on those seeds, too. And, of course, your transplants are going to grow faster as well, so you get your food that much faster. One of our main reasons that we converted to raised beds is that our vegetable, where our place for the vegetable garden, ideal in terms of the fact that it's full sun, we have a deer fence around it, but it was a little bit on the hilly side. We didn't really think of it as hilly. We thought of it as level, but boy, um, all it took is a day with a transit to figure out just how hilly it is. And, and I figured it out when I started planting because I would plant these seeds and I thought, well, this is kind of on a slope. And um, the problem is the water tended to drain off that soil. And when I planted a fair... The worst problem was with really small seeds like carrots. Um, the water would drain off, and if then if it rained, especially if it was a hard rain, it just washed those seeds right off. So, you know, if you want to plant on a level space, if you possibly can. 
they're also more convenient. Uh, you have enjoyed sitting on a cart, and it allows you to take care of your growing plants. Easier on your back that way, yeah, definitely. You said that's one of the, the, the hilly terrain was one of the main reasons. I think the the issue of the encroachment of weeds from the aisles into the rows was probably the most challenging part of yes. growing without raised beds for us. And that problem is basically solved. Yeah, now. because what would happen is you can mow, but if, if when the grass is standing up, but there were always weeds that just went, grew sideways into the beds and just spread. And without that line of demarcation, which we now have, uh, it was just almost impossible to control them. Another advantage of raised beds is that you are far less likely to have for yourself or your pets or your guests to step in them. And obviously, you want to reduce soil compaction if at all possible, and raised beds have helped us do that. Right. Um, they look great if you're in a neighborhood, especially where you, you're interested in uh, aesthetics and you can build raised beds out of so many different types of um, substances so you can choose what looks good for you um, and and actually here's another advantage of a raised bed if you have a pest or a varmint or something that tunnels from underneath up into your plants then you can actually rig your raised bed to exclude that tunneling and uh, you have a photo there of attaching. We attached hardware cloth to the bottom of our raised beds. Um, so one year when we didn't have the raised bed, I planted sweet potatoes right into the ground. The we're pretty sure now voles ate the sweet potatoes, and I would there was nothing left. Last year, you've already shown the bumper crop of sweet potatoes planted in a raised bed that had that hardware that cloth on the bottom. That was protected from right. the tunneling voles, and it really did the job. Okay, now let's talk about a few disadvantages of raised beds. They, you can build a raised bed really cheap with concrete block, but the ones that we use made out of treated yellow pine and using bolts and screws and 4x4 four four posts and so forth do cost money. We have about $120 in each of our beds. That's before you add the soil to them. So, you know, they can they can run into money. But, of course, we are hoping that that's a long-term investment. We don't plan to have to Certainly. replace them. So if you do build them, build them to stay if you can. <laughs> um, you Also, the dense planting I mentioned, the, the downside of the dense planting is uh, you can get more plant diseases that way because there's not the air ventilation. Air Particularly with tomatoes. Yeah, so you want to, and I don't even, you know, I've sworn off dense planting of tomatoes. I just spread them out and plant fewer plants. But same with lettuces. They're just, they need some, you know, when they get wet, they need to be able to dry out. So just keep that in mind. Um, the soil dries out faster during the heat of the summer, so you will need to provide more water. Yeah, you may be able to get by without supplemental water for most of the months in your growing season. If you're planting in the ground, you almost certainly will need to get started earlier and water more with raised beds. Yeah. And, of course, it reduces your usable growing space because you've got you've got room for the beds. You know, you've got to make room for those. But as that may be offset by the being able to plant more densely. Yeah. Uh, crop rotation can get a little more complicated, particularly if you're only dealing with one bed. But it, I don't think that's a huge issue. It's no, just sort you, of you've got you, to work around it. Yeah, you just might need to d think of your divide your bed mentally into three parts, especially like one of our long ones. I might say, okay, I planted in the north 
third of this bed. I planted nightshades last year. So now I'll shift that to the, you know, south third next year and plant some other type of right. some other family in that. Um, sprawling crops like melons and squash and cucumbers present a challenge. But, and of course, the cucumbers, we mentioned one way to deal with it is the trellis. But it's kind of hard to trellis a watermelon, especially if you grow big ones <laughs> or a pumpkin. So, um, I, you know what I did last year? I just let them sprawl out over. I, I had to go pl- pay close attention to where they were. But I would rearrange so that the melons were in a happy place. And I just let them sprawl over into the aisles. Yes, which solves your problem but makes mine in yeah. materially more I difficult. Know. I know. Uh, Letting your plants or your fruit sprawl outside the bed creates all sorts of issues for the mower who's having to keep the grass under control and so forth. So I don't recommend that. Right. Um, If you have tall crops, and okra is probably the one that comes to mind the, the easiest, they'll be even taller in a raised bed just because their soil line is higher. And we've got a picture here of you and Adrian doing a little pruning to the okra that had already grown up above your heads. Actually, we weren't pruning. We were try- attempting to pick it. Yeah, you were but, actually picking okra <laughs> pods. But what we've learned since then is that, you know, you can come around about the middle of August and cut those babies uh, off and they don't have to grow to be 14 feet tall. Growing Food is a lot of fun. Each one of these is one day's haul from the garden. Um, and it is, you, it's just a lot of fun to grow your own food. So we commend it to you and hope you'll do it more. We, we have our last slide showing uh, the website for ACES and a couple of really key publications that we would recommend. Uh, the If you're thinking about raised beds, of course, that middle one there would be important. But it's almost like the gardener's Bible for me to have that planting guide for home gardening in Alabama, ANR 63. And then uh, a really comprehensive uh, guide is vegetable gardening, um, ANR um, 0479. But uh, the first one will give you planting dates for both fall and spring and planting uh, spacing recommended and recommended varieties for this area. So we find that exceptionally helpful. Well, we appreciate you being with us this time, and we hope that you have a great week. We'll catch up with you next time. Happy planting. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Our address is P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the daily farm log and check in with Lee and Amanda. That's longleafbreeze.com.